Did you know that there are record number of Canadians experiencing randomized attacks? And also, did you know that there's a record number of Canadians dying of drug overdoses? The question is, is Canada dying? And that's what we're going to talk about with my next guest, Aaron Gunn. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. The downtown east side Vancouver is third world. We live in a open prison yard. Why should my kids have to live in that risk and that danger? Other citizens have rights as well. You have a right not to inhale secondhand crystal meth smoke. It's really a case of the inmates running the asylum. What is happening to Canada, a country once considered immune from the most appalling displays of homelessness and chaos, has become an epicenter for shocking, violent, and at times, random attacks. As drug use has burst into the open, and a devastating battle with addiction has literally left tens of thousands of Canadians dead. But what is the solution? Do we simply need a so-called safe supply of toxic drugs? Should more provinces follow the lead of BC and decriminalize fentanyl, meth, and cocaine? Or is it time to put victims first, crack down on crime, and get addicts the help and treatment they so desperately need? I hate the word safe supply because you would probably think it was safe to take. And that's the problem is that it's not safe. Most people who are using this have never tried drugs before this. Like, it's definitely creating a lot more addicts than there was before. What we're doing now is almost capital punishment in our streets by neglect. This is like the industrialization of addiction. It's as scary as it gets. Aaron Gunn, the producer of that hard-hitting documentary, Is Canada Dying? Welcome to our program today. Thank you for having me. It's great to, to be here to chat about these issues. Well, Aaron, speaking of these issues, like you're taking on two big issues in, in our country today. One is about the whole policy about drugs, drugs, uh, specifically the, the whole idea of safe drug supply. And secondly, you're talking about the issue of criminal changes to how we treat um, offenders in the law. So why did you decide to take on those two big topics, those two big policy areas that are impacting Canadians? Well, I think growing up in, in coastal British Columbia, you've seen these issues getting worse and worse. You've seen um, these random violent attacks, which you mentioned. You've seen the homelessness issue get worse and worse. Just this general kind of chaos and disorder in our streets and obviously the overdose deaths over 2,000 in British Columbia alone last year, dead from drug overdoses. And uh, I really want to know, because uh, I had a feeling that these might all be connected. And the other reason I really set out to make this documentary, uh, as, as you obviously know here in BC, it's been almost impossible to challenge the orthodoxy on these issues, this harm reduction or so-called harm reduction orthodoxy that has been in place uh, for my pretty much the whole time I've been politically active or aware, certainly over the past 20, 25 years. And as somebody who lives here and uh, walks down these streets, 
you know, to me, it's kind of like, if this is success, what does fail failure look like? And yet all we hear is a doubling down on the exact same policies or arguments from certain individuals that we haven't gone far enough. And uh, from my perspective, I thought it was time to have an actual debate or discussion about, about these issues. And maybe there's another side to the story and maybe we should explore it. Exactly. Now, Aaron, you use the word orthodoxy. What do you mean by orthodoxy? Well, I guess as, as it pertains to the harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's um, well, well, it's it's an ideology, really. I, I think it's it's this it's ideology of uh, probably stems from an ideology of a group of people in our society that don't believe in individual agency or individual responsibility. Or the, you know, if, if something happens to an individual, it's always society's fault at large and, and thus society mm-hmm. should pay the consequences for that as opposed to the individual absorbing them. So um, I think there is a real uh, ideology or orthodoxy around uh, these kinds of issues. Again, to me, though, uh, I think most Canadians, most British Columbians aren't ide- ideological. Mm-hmm. Um, they just want policies that work and, and they're busy raising their families and going to work and, and living their lives. And to me, it's just so obvious that over the past 20 years, what we've been doing hasn't been working and violent crimes have been getting out of control. Um, you know, I've, I chatted with um, only one made it into the video, but a handful of, of mothers whose sons were, were, were murdered by repeat mm-hmm. violent offenders who should have never been out on our streets in the first place. Uh, you see, everyday businesses having to deal with the consequences of of prolific offenders that just you know it's in the jail one day out out that afternoon and committing the exact same crimes uh, whether it's shoplifting or vandalism and the businesses that are having to deal with this and um and then talking just to the everyday residents who no longer feel safe whether it's riding the transit systems in calgary or toronto or whether it's walking in parts of downtown vancouver uh, or smaller cities like Victoria and London and Kelowna. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's um, you know a combination of these issues where this isn't right. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, the the interests of criminals and um, certain advocacy groups are being placed ahead of those of everyday taxpaying citizens. And I think there's a general degree of people being fed up. And I don't think it's ideal. I don't think it's left or right. The people that are, I think it's just normal people that are saying this is, this is, this is out of control. So that's, uh, those are the issues that I wanted to focus on. And then of course, with regard to safe supply, um, the, the really kind of disturbing fact that, that, you know, our government is now fueling the, the next wave of this crisis. So, so well summarized, Aaron. So I did want to walk through a bit more systematically, the the points that you make in the documentary, because it, it is really well done. I do recommend it to people. In fact, it's amazing. Um, as of this date, you've already surpassed 1 million views. Are you surprised by that? Well, I had another documentary before this called Vancouver is Dying, which was mm-hmm. definitely the biggest documentary that I had done. And the question really was, after I did Vancouver is Dying, is people reached out to me from across the country and said, you have to come to my city, you know, like insert Canadian city here, the same thing is happening. And maybe it's not as bad as, as Vancouver. Vancouver is still kind of the epicenter of this, Mm -hmm. but you know, the same criminal justice policies of the federal government, the same um, 
easy access to opioids and drug policies being pushed by the federal government are in play in most of the country as well. Mm -hmm. When you copy and paste the same policies, you get similar results. So uh, that being said, you never know when you put out a video how it's how it's going to do. And this was a lot longer than anything I'd done before. Uh, the average, uh, well, I used to mainly do three, four minute videos, and then the average documentary maybe twenty five minutes. And and this is this is eighty minutes long. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know we might normally interview eight or nine people. We interviewed forty nine for this uh, project. So it's um, it was much different in scale and scope. So I wasn't uh, sure how it's going to do, but it's it's um, it's nice to see the the response from Canadians. I mean, it's unfortunate in some degree as well because it, it shows that these problems are very real and impacting people's lives and right. they're looking for uh, mm-hmm. alternatives. Well, what I really appreciated about the documentary and the approach you took was it was very insightful in terms of both information and statistics, but it was also very thoughtful about your, your uh, talk with real victims of these policies. And leaders across the country about why this is going on. So on that note, I did want to talk a little bit about the whole phenomenon of random assaults um, in our country. And 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 you had mentioned that as of March 23rd um, in Canada, I believe that that was the statistic, they're up by some 32%. It's really quite uh, disturbing. And, and so my question is this, what are random assaults and um why did you begin the documentary talking about that particular issue well i think random assaults or random murders uh are well to differentiate them are basically are are assaults or murders that are that are random that aren't targeted uh obviously there's there's another there's another issue of of kind of gang violence and and Mm -hmm. uh, things like that that happen that's that's targeted uh, that is obviously concerning for its own reasons, but you know it has less of an impact, I think, to people's personal safety or, or the average citizen's personal mm-hmm. safety. Uh, contrast that with random attacks, and these are people that are just going about their daily lives downtown, and then who are just who are just violently assaulted. Mm-hmm. Innocent so, Canadians. Innocent Canadians, yes. And the um, well, why we chose to start the documentary with that is simply, I think, because it's been in the news a lot. And because, you know, the thesis, I think, running throughout this whole documentary is that uh, the addictions crisis that is in part currently being fueled by fueled by government policies is leading to a lot of these other externalities. Hmm. So the random violence, a lot of that is being driven by drug induced uh, psychosis or mental illnesses that have been been set off by by addiction and drug issues. And um, you can't you can't separate the two. They're connected. And, you know, I talked to police officers, obviously, there's always been crime and violent crime, but these random assaults, these people never used to happen in the in the to the way they're happening. Now, every week, there's something there was, you know, a 16 year old old boy waiting to catch the subway in Toronto, who's just stabbed to death randomly. It's not like he's getting mugged. He just and, randomly. And, and this was the story, uh, Aaron, of, of Gabrielle Magaliz, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the ones we started with there's the the young father outside of starbucks downtown vancouver on granville street that got a lot of attention there's other people stabbed to death on the sky train in vancouver um buses in toronto um and and, and elsewhere as well so it's in, in edmonton there was a very prominent attack of a 
of a mother and her young son uh, that got randomly attacked and murdered for no reason in broad daylight. And again, these aren't even, this isn't like your traditional warped yeah. serial killer. These right. are happening in broad daylight. Uh, but, but, but to be clear, in this case, you have an attack on an innocent Canadian for no no rational reason. And these people have been, you know, brutally killed in front of their family or others. It's, it's, it's truly shocking. I don't think in my memory, I can recall the number of these instances ever happening before in our country. Can you? No, I can't. And specifically as it pertains to the randomness, like I said, there's always been kind of gang violence and, 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 and things like that. And that's just, that's a separate issue that the randomness of people just walking and sometimes these are, you know, nice neighborhoods, upper class uh, neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in Toronto, people are afraid of taking the the Metro anymore. It's crazy. So, so Aaron, in this case, the perpetrators, the people who've brutally undertaken these crimes, do they have something in common? Is it is it really pretty straight up what they have in common? Well, one thing that they almost all have in common, without exception, is the fact that they've had multiple and escalating uh, interactions with Canada's justice system. So um, the odds of someone having no criminal record and and uh, and committing one of these random violent assaults or murders is quite low. Um, it still happens, I think, with some of the drug issues and stuff that's going on. But mm-hmm. the, you know, there's a whole bunch of cases that we covered where you had individuals with over 50 prior criminal convictions, violent criminal convictions, 50 prior 50, convictions, 50 prior convictions, charged more than 100 times, violent attacks, uh, being released by you know, the criminal justice system and parole boards with the note that this person is likely to, to violently reoffend again. And yet we release them back into our streets. And it's, it's interesting because there's been this obsession with rehabilitation in Canada's justice system mm-hmm. and a real downplaying of the concept of, of justice at all that, you know, a victim or their family deserves some kind of justice or some kind of restitution is almost in, in this country seems like an antiquated notion uh, what's really new is uh, this this kind of deference to the criminal or the the person who's been criminally charged and convicted of crimes is now outweighing public safety. The f- fact that this person's going to go out again and is very likely to commit another violent assault or uh, murder um, it's it's really shocking and it's sad and it's disturbing and. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's it just shows, I think, how broken our justice system yeah, is. I think Canadians would be just shocked to hear that someone can undertake offense after offense and still be out on the loose and recommitting those offenses again and again. It's 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 truly is shocking. So, I was intrigued, Aaron, that you were talking with a lot of people, including leaders within the justice system. Um, some of whom are police chiefs. Um, I know that you spoke with, um, if memory serves me correctly, uh, former police chief uh, Mark Saunders with the uh, the Toronto Police. And he said something very interesting. He said, whatever we do as a society, we can't normalize this type of crime. What did you think he meant by that? I think in the same way that 
you talked about these random attacks, especially in the frequency that they're happening, was not something that we're used to, that didn't wasn't happening 15, 20 years ago. Uh, we shouldn't become used to it. We shouldn't get to a point where people are just have come to to expect and live with the fact that uh, you know, if you go if you go downtown, you might be randomly assaulted or, or attacked, and and it's basically did not go downtown anymore, and that's just the world that we're living in. That is the danger if you normalize this kind of behavior. So I think that's what the the former police chief, who's now running for mayor, by the way, in Toronto, oh, yes. uh, was, was speaking to, and um, you know, that's that's what we heard from a lot of people. Is you don't want to normalize this. It also goes with some of the homelessness in the tent cities. Uh, you know, this was not something that I ever remember growing up. And then in the past five, seven years they're in BC, they're, you know, they're cropping up all over the place. They're obviously also organized by activists. And, uh, you know, you see what happens in the downtown east side. Uh, it's almost like the downtown east side where it once was an exception. It's now become almost a model that is that is being attempted to be replicated in other cities across BC and across the country. So that's something I did want to pick up. It's just fascinating that you mentioned that is that you have this happening right across the country. And I've, I've certainly seen it, but also you have uh, something that a lot of Canadians may not be aware of, but you have different organized groups, uh, some of which are actually funded by different governments that are in some ways trying to normalize it. Is that a fair comment or observation? Well, they're certainly trying to normalize drug use, hard drug use. There's mm -hmm. many of those groups uh, available. Uh, and, and they're certainly attempting to, they're organizing a lot of these homeless camps. Mm -hmm. And they are, I mean, these the homeless people are not organizing themselves into these camps, which shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. Mm -hmm. And um, they're organized into these camps for for political reasons. Um, it gets a little bit more, I mean, usually they're trying to almost, in a sense, blackmail the government or blackmail the population into giving them free stuff, giving them more money to to house these individuals in perpetuity for free mm -hmm. with free drugs and all sorts of other benefits. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's all kind of wrapped up uh, together. And um, that's obviously problematic for a lot of reasons, but there's a lot of, you know, I call it the, the poverty industrial complex mm. in a lot of there's a lot of people making a lot of money. Um, you know, there's, there's, uh, I feel like we're well tuned as a society to, to, uh, to, to have a degree of hesitancy or um, um, well-placed skepticism in large corporations, billion-dollar corporations. But there's almost, I think, an, an uh, that, that degree of healthy skepticism and awareness uh, isn't there necessarily. For some of these smaller operations, these so-called nonprofits, we're actually getting millions of dollars and uh, supporting themselves and paying themselves quite handsomely, um, who combined kind of make up this this network in the downtown east side, for example, that's that's extracting tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. from the government, from taxpayers uh, that we're all paying for. With, with, with no results to show for it, by the way. Yeah, but I, I think that's a very insightful point is that it's not for lack of money necessarily. It's how it's being used and frankly, the approach that's being taken. And that gets back to your comment about orthodoxy, the kind of um, assumed approach that things like this, you know, these issues need to be looked at and how that's not, you can't question that or evaluate it. Maybe we could talk a little bit about significant um, criminal legislation. Uh, bills, 
We have um, Bill C-5 um, about minimum sentencing and, of course, Bill C-75, um, where kind of the first opening for any judge uh, is to put a, an offender um, on release, on bail. Um, so you, you, I think you do a really good job in the documentary pointing out the significance of that legislation. How much of a difference did they make in terms of uh, this mess that we find ourselves in? I think quite a bit. I mean, C seventy five especially. That's that's the that's the bail reform legislation that was passed in twenty nineteen. So C five, first of all, that's it's kind of a combination of uh, so that legislation removed a bunch of mandatory minimums that ensured that people that were found guilty of crimes like armed robbery spent a minimum amount of time in jail. Uh, serious crimes. I think it's fourteen different offenses. Wow, like including uh, armed robbery, Aaron. Including armed robbery, including kidnapping. Uh, There's a, a series of, of, of different various firearm offenses. The um, so the the other part of that that we didn't get into in the documentary was some of these mandatory minimums were also struck down by the Supreme Court, which is another piece of this wheel that's the problem. Mm, the Supreme the, Court. Yeah. So this is the Supreme Court, and I and I will say just to just to emphasize to people the reason why there's all this stuff seems to be moving in a certain direction that's that's a that's making this problem worse and worse almost in unison is because it is about a culture it's a culture of you know the individual is not responsible for their actions there's some kind of collective guilt that society needs to to bear the burden of mm -hmm. in rehabilitating this person and releasing them as quickly as possible and that's embodied most most uh, almost in perfect form in bill c75 where there's mm -hmm. there's explicit legislation that basically said out, outside of exceptional circumstances, uh, individuals uh, charged with crimes, including violent crimes, uh, should be released on onto bail. And the consequences of that have been shocking. There's obviously been very high profile murders like the OPP officer. Um, there's also been um, just random it like uh, not red increases in these random attacks. So Windsor, for example. There has been, since this bill has passed, a 400% increase in violent attacks uh, committed by people out on bail since the passage of Bill C-75. 400% in Windsor, Ontario. Windsor, Ontario alone. In Edmonton, in the three years since the passage of Bill C-75, there's been over two dozen homicides committed in which one of the suspects was an individual who was currently out on bail for something wow. else. There was 2,100 uh, violent assaults committed in three years by people who were out on bail. In British Columbia, the judges granted bail 75% of the time to individuals accused of a violent attack, of a violent offense, who were already out on bail for something else. So these are people who were out on bail for something uh, and then were arrested and charged again for another violent attack that they wow. committed while on bail. And then they got bail again, 75% of the time. So that is what this piece of legislation uh, has done. That, and, that, that is just horrific. I just cannot imagine the carnage this makes on people's lives and their families, their friends, the whole community. It just sends a trauma wave through, like the consequences of that are hard to wrap one's mind around. Yeah, everyone forgets that there's a cascading, you know, when someone is violently attacked or murdered, yeah. especially when they're murdered, there is, um, you know, the, the consequences of that ripple throughout families 
uh, ripple throughout communities. Yeah, and no, it, it's outrageous. So, Aaron, in that, and you were alluding to it earlier, the philosophy or the approach to this kind of judicial philosophy, um, like this approach, how the heck do they square the circle? Like, how is any of this compassionate? Like, if you're a caring, compassionate leader, decision maker, how do you think this is compassion with that kind of increase? Like in Windsor, Ontario, a 400% increase in violent crime. Like this is, I don't mean to sound so dramatic, but this is insane. How do you, how does a caring person think this is the reasonable way to go? Because while they're driven by ideology and not, not facts, not logic, and, and you have judges, judges and politicians who will see somebody convicted of, say, their 50th serious offense, their 50th violent assault, let's say. And their approach, which is not obviously in line with most Canadians, mm -hmm. is to say, oh, well, why are they committing this assault? They must have had uh, must have had a rough upbringing or society must have been, maybe they were bullied at school or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's our job as a government to try to provide them supports and release them back into society, not taking into account at all the potential ramifications of, of that decision on many innocent Canadians who keep getting assaulted or even murdered uh, by these individuals. And there's also, by the way, uh, this applies to people convicted of repeat uh, sexual assault or rape who are just being released back wow. uh, with no jail time or, or 18 months or whatever uh, the case may be. And it's, it's leaving, um, you know, the judges and the politicians making the, these decisions aren't bearing the consequences uh, for making it. So it's like the, uh, you know, the safe injection sites, right? You'll never have a politician yeah. who they, they will go on and on about the purported benefits of these facilities, but they're never putting one in their backyard. Right? Exactly. Yeah. In their neighborhood. And well, it, well certainly in the, in the public policy world, we would refer often to uh, the great Thomas Sowell, who said that insane systems are one that you design where the decision makers undertake their decisions, but the consequences never come back to them. Uh, so if you think of like our healthcare system as an example, or this case, the MPs, the judges, uh, these, these officials don't live with these consequences of it. It's just the, the working people of Canada that are suffering um, and, and innocent at that. They don't even have anything to do with this, but they're being impacted. So it, it's really atrocious. Um, the other thing that I found fascinating in the documentary is that you put your finger on also the emerging creature of this type of way of thinking. And that is that we'll have a different treatment of offenders based on their race, their, their ethnicity, if you will. Um, and I thought, you know, you're like, you, you, you tell powerfully the story of the tragedy of the, um, the James Cree First Nation, where some 11 people were murdered by a prolific offender. So is, are you seeing the emergence then of two judicial systems in our country, two different standards of law then? For sure. And it's, it might be one of the most um, uh, perverse forms of affirmative action uh, imaginable because, um, you know, at least with other forms of affirmative action, which I would not be uh, super supportive of for, for similar reasons. But, um, you know, at least with those, you can make the argument they're somehow 
writing some kind of historical wrong and leveling the playing field and bringing up certain groups that have been historically marginalized. These policies uh, boomerang back and hurt the exact same groups they're purported to help the most. I mean, it's also very paternalistic, let's say with Indigenous Canadians. I mean, the vast majority of Indigenous Canadians are not running around committing violent crimes and being charged for violent crimes. And to suggest otherwise is, is, is in fact, quite, quite uh, racist, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And um, so the idea that, and when Indigenous people, like any group, do commit crimes, they're likely to commit crimes within the area that they live and within the community's uh, family, especially. Uh, so when you're repeating repeat um, violent criminals or repeat sexual predators, uh, who say happen to be Indigenous just because they're Indigenous, they're likely to then go out and reoffend in those exact same communities, victimizing more Indigenous people, creating more intergenerational trauma, and actually furthering and entrenching the problem that yeah. you claim you're purporting to fix. And that is um, why I find, and I mean the 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 uh, example that you use, which is featured in the documentary in Saskatchewan, is just one example. Uh, because it's it's the most headline graph uh, grabbing, mm-hmm. but this is happening on a much smaller scale. You know, domestic abuse, uh, uh, sexual assault, like I mentioned, mm-hmm. um, and, and other violent crimes, especially on reserves, all the time. And it's it's um, I I chatted with lots of. I mean, it's it's again, it's not uh, there's all there's you know I talked to ind- Indigenous Canadians, ma- featured mainly Indigenous Canadians, in three other documentaries I did about how they want economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right. They, want, they want to um, lift more Indigenous Canadians out of poverty and, mm-hmm. and finally kind of cash the check that they were promised of the Canadian dream so many years ago. Where they're so. not working. No one's like, hey, we need uh, violent criminals who happen to be Indigenous let uh, released onto our streets. That is not mm-hmm. what Indigenous people are looking for. And to suggest otherwise is completely, I think, um, completely missing the bigger picture. And uh, as I said, quite paternalistic. Well said. Yeah, this is an attack on the rule of law. And if we don't have the rule of law, how do we have a pathway to not only safe safety and human health, but also prosperity? They're all interrelated, aren't they, Aaron? They are. They are. And the, and the final point is, I mean, just like the, the famous photo of Lady Justice or statue uh, of Lady Justice is, you know, with the blindfold. Uh-huh. Yeah, justice is supposed to be blind. Justice is not supposed to take into account one's ethnicity or color of, of their skin. And uh, as I talk to prosecutors about off, off uh, uh, everyone's aware of what's going on, it's, except the general public, I think. But everyone in the system knows what's going on. And um, and and again, people, uh, you know, there's you know mitigating issues about uh, that you might have from a personal perspective, but that's already built into the justice system. Mm-hmm. Uh, in pre-sentencing hearings, you don't need to have some special, uh, um, you know, separate lane for people of certain racial mm-hmm. identities or backgrounds. And um, it's just, uh, and, and again, there's a, there's something that I, that I put on the screen from the BC Prosecutor Service, which I think is so disturbing, where they openly say that prosecutors should consider not charging uh, Indigenous Canadians, for example, um, oh. because they want to reduce the ratio of indigenous people in, in jail. So it's kind of like, it's, 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 it's crazy when you think about it, because it's, it's not, it's not talk taking into account public safety. It's mm-hmm. not taking into account uh, whether these people did the crimes, who are the victims or the victims. Mm-hmm. indigenous. Exactly. 
It's just a, we want to hit an arbitrary quota of, of the mm-hmm. kind of people who are in our jail. Like I think here's the people that should, here's the identity of the people that should be in jail. 100% of the people that are in jail should be the ones that are a threat to public safety. That's, that should be the only, uh, and, and that committed violent crimes and, and mm-hmm. other criminal offenses. I mean, who cares what color their skin is as, as, you know, if somebody breaks into your home and, and hits you or your wife over the head with a pipe, it shouldn't matter what the color of their skin is. I, I think that's a very good insight as well. So within this context, I, I think, again, what you're doing, and again, this is a marvelous documentary, Aaron, uh, that you and your team have put together, because it's really revealing how the world has changed profoundly, almost behind the scenes. Like our, our, our justice system is not what you think it is anymore. And at the same time, um, the ground has shifted when it comes to drug policy in this country. So I did want to talk more about that. I, I'm, I, you know, I, I think most people realize that the number of Canadians that are overdosing is is an epidemic. Uh, is it as really bad as as we say it is? I mean, I can't believe it. I mean, it's it's six thousand Canadians, mainly young Canadians. Uh, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers that overdosed and died last year, preventable deaths, 6,000 people. I mean, it's the population of a, of a small town. And I mean, this is, this is an increase of uh, over a thousand percent from about 15 years ago. It is um, a absolutely shocking number. It should shock the consciousness of, of any Canadian. Over 2,000 of those are in BC, which is even more shocking from a, from a per capita perspective. What, a, what an absolute train wreck and waste of human life. And there's no larger waste of human life happening in, in, in the Western world right now. I mean, it's just, if I remember, uh, not that it's a great comparison, but these, these are young these are young people. These are people that had their entire lives in front of them. These are people that leave behind family members, um, and that rippling of 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 trauma um, and sorrow that that goes throughout the communities. And I like I remember in our uh, Af- when we were in Afghanistan. Um, I mean, we lost I think 155 Canadians mm-hmm. over around a 10 year commitment. Yes, that's right. Um, which was the largest loss of military life since the Korean War in this country. And every time a body came back, it was it was. Uh, very sad and traumatic for the country, and rightly so. But the to just and put that perspective of there's six thousand people dying preventable deaths every single year in this country. Uh, this isn't cancer or something that's that's mm-hmm. kind of a fact of life that we're trying to to solve as much as we can. This is just completely preventable, and um, it's it's I think says a lot about where society and where our culture is at right now. But it's it's and you're always going to have some of this, but the the way it's been turbocharged and exacerbated by our own government and our own government's policies is is very disturbing mm-hmm. and um uh i mean it should it should be a top issue for 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 all canadians really so i do want to zero in then on that seminal point about drug policy we've heard a lot in this country about the claims that somehow uh policymakers talk about a safe drug supply um what what does that mean? And is it safe? Well, the first thing I'd say is I think it's an oxymoron. I don't think there's there's when it comes to opioids, which is what they're talking about. There is there is no such thing as a as a safe supply or a safer supply, as some of them are have have now started calling it um, what they're what they are. 
well, some activists mean different things, but in general, what they're talking about is the provision of drugs in a, uh, from a, from a chemistry perspective that are, that are of, that are pure, I, I guess, from like a pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical grade drugs. Right. Um, As opposed to being made in someone's basement or something like that. Yeah. In consistent and predictable quantities. Now, um, a couple fallacies out there is, is you hear a lot about, you know, the toxic drug crisis and in, in the sense that we have a toxic drug supply. I mean, that's uh-huh. it's, it's so misleading. The, the drugs themselves uh, are toxic. That, that's what it's, it's not there. There isn't like a the drugs have been contaminated. Right. Fentanyl fentanyl will kill most people in very small amounts. Um, if you or I took, uh, you know, pure fentanyl. Um, we would die virtually any amount outside of a very controlled medical setting. So these drugs, it's not that the drugs have been poisoned. The drugs are the poison. So that's right. the first yeah. thing to kind drugs of Drugs are a problem. Yeah, the drugs are the problem in the first place. And supplying more of them is just going to get you more drug use. Mm-hmm. Now, their argument is that people will be less likely to overdose if they are using drugs that are of a of a consistent potency, let's say, is, is, is maybe the... Um, the, the best term okay. to use. So, so if you're an addict, you might as well take um, quote safe drugs uh, and not get something that that's contaminated in that drug. Yeah. So that's one thing that they're saying. So, so I, when I originally made the documentary, that's what I assume was more of the problem. That's mm-hmm. not really the problem. The, the, the bigger thing is that they, they don't know the potency of the fentanyl. So I'll explain when I started to make out the documentary, I thought most people were dying from fentanyl overdoses because other drugs like cocaine or heroin were being laced with fentanyl. Mm. That is not what's happening. The addicts are addicted to fentanyl and seeking out fentanyl. Now, some of these activists will say that when they're doing fentanyl made in someone's basement, you don't know the exact potency of any given batch, uh, where obviously if it's made in like a laboratory by a farm, you're better, you understand maybe how many milligrams you're taking Mm -hmm. um, a little bit more. But uh, what the safe supply program is specifically doing right now is they're they're handing out something called hydromorphone, which is which is almost a pill form of heroin or a heroin substitute. It is Dillies. So uh, Dillies is short for Dilaudid, which is a brand name uh, of hydromorphone. Mm -hmm. It is a it's about three times more powerful than than Oxycontin, to put it in, in perspective, which is obviously what fueled the opioid crisis in the first place. And they're being literally handed out like candy on Halloween by the federal government across the country. So, so just to uh, clarify, so you're saying the federal government is handing out these drugs to people? En masse. En masse. Now, you have to, um, sometimes you get tested, sometimes you don't. But basically, you walk into one of these addiction clinics that's specifically sponsored, safe supply clinics sponsored by Health Canada, mm-hmm. which is a whole other story. And you say you're addicted to fentanyl and you would like a prescription to so-called safe supply. You get the prescription. The the geniuses that thought this up in Ottawa uh, somehow thought that addi- addicts addicted to fentanyl would then instead take these hydromorphone tablets, which are notionally safer. It's an opioid. You can overdose on it just as like you can with fentanyl as well. Um, but what they didn't, don't understand is the people that are addicted to fentanyl are addicted to the high that they get from fentanyl. That's why literally they risk their, I mean, they're not stupid. They understand the risk. They all, they know better than anybody, the risks of doing fentanyl, yet they Mm -hmm. continue to do it every single day. Um, And they're doing it in spite of those risks. And 
one of the things because it's so risky is you get a incredible comparatively incredible high which is what they're seeking so if you give them a drug that has an inferior high from their perspective they're not going to use it instead they turn around and sell it to get the money to buy the fentanyl that they actually want meanwhile those drugs that they've sold or traded to their drug dealers onto the black market then need to go find a different home and these drugs are now being sold on mass uh, university campuses college campuses and even on high schools and that is being it's almost like a entry-level drug or gateway drug even though that term uh some people don't like that term anymore for you know young people who maybe have just started drinking or smoking pot and yeah. then are said hey, you should try this pill this is pharmaceutical it's from the government it's safe you know it's from safe mm -hmm. supply mm -hmm. and they're dirt cheap you can get high off one of these, wow. these tablets because the, and they're dirt cheap because the government is flooding the streets with them so um, they used to be 20, 30 bucks a pill. Yeah. Now they're two, $3 a pill. Wow. And, um, and they're very dangerous. I mean, it, to give you an example too, if you say you um, had surgery or you um, had a really bad like ankle sprain or oh, well, I got a, a very like th third degree groin tear when I was playing hockey, you get, um, you might get like one milligram tablets of hydromorphone mm -hmm. that maybe you take like twice a day. Um, these individuals, the safe supply program, the government's handing out, they're giving these individuals eight milligram tablets, 30 times a day, 38. So you're in severe pain. You might take two, one milligram tablets a day. They're getting 38 milligram wow. tablets. So, I mean, that's, and, and any of them, they're either selling the drugs or in the cases that these addicts end up actually taking the hydromorphone, basically none of them are taking it orally. They're all uh, dissolving it and shooting it uh, into their system, which is a you can overdose on it because that's not how it's meant to take. And B, because you're not meant to shoot up these drugs, um, they're obviously made like they have got a certain release mechanism. And there's, there's other things in the in the tablet uh, that you're obviously not supposed to be injecting into your bloodstream. There's been a massive increase in people with um, a, a spinal infarctions and things like that. And we interviewed one of those who are quadriplegic, paraplegic. You see uh -huh. people increasingly in wheelchairs and things like that in the downtown east side and in these different parts of these tent encampments. And that's a lot of times because they've had, they've been injecting the safe supply drugs, the so-called safe supply drugs that's then leading to, they lose use of their, their legs or other limbs. Wow. Aaron, this is like out of a bad movie. It's almost like the, the government has become the biggest drug pusher in Canada now, because they're flooding the market with all these, these drugs. Is that an? Yeah, no, it's the it's the cartel, the triad, the mafia, and the federal government. I mean, it's it's wow. uh, it's shocking to see. One pharmacist we interviewed said that she's dispensing a that one pharmacist at one pharmacy dispensing a thousand of these eight milligram hydromorphone. Again, they're kind of like a heroin substitute tablets every single wow. day. These are being of safe drug supply. Yeah, that's exactly what. And and there's and there's doctors know that the doctors prescribing these drugs, small number of doctors prescribing these drugs, know they're being diverted, and they don't care because you know from their kind of ideological perspective, oh, the more of these drugs that get out there, the better. Um, yeah. Because uh, you know maybe they'll displace the illegal drug supply, but it's yeah, it's right. just adding to it. It's just fueling the fire. We also chatted with people where um, they'll the, the hydromorphone. It's an opioid like fentanyl. 
is going into the sometimes the precursor that's actually used to make the fentanyl. So they'll just trade the drugs and they they'll go get it and they'll they'll mix it up and you, you really it, can't yeah. make it up. So just to to uh, zero in a little bit on that that whole ideological rationale to this quote safe drug supply, and you mentioned the word destigmatization. What do you mean by that? And and what is that all about? Well, it's the so when the government decriminalized drugs here in British Columbia, their stated purpose was to destigmatize drug use. And their argument is that because of stigma around drug use, the people haven't been getting into treatment. And, I, and I've chatted with so many addicts in recovery, and they just all laugh at that, that the idea that somebody's not getting into treatment because there's stigma around the drug use. People that are in the downtown east side shooting up, walking around like zombies, do not care uh, are no. way past caring about the stigma for their action. That, that's uh, almost laughable, isn't it? Uh, they don't care about stigma. It is. It's completely laughable. It's also overlooked. I mean, there's so much hypocrisy here. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, uh, societies will always stigmatize certain behaviors, and they stigmatize right. behaviors that have negative societal consequences or personal consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, people look down on things that you shouldn't be doing. I mean, yeah. we've well, created... It's funny, Aaron. It's almost like it begs the question, aren't there healthy things or isn't it healthy to stigmatize um, bad things like drugs or, or not working? Well, it's bizarre because the people pushing these policies, especially the left wing governments, I mean, they're, they're all for stigmatizing other things. They stigmatize smoking cigarettes, for example, mm-hmm. and quite successfully yeah. they stigmatize drinking and driving over the past 60 years and quite successfully. And, you know, they stigmatize domestic abuse and spousal abuse, which exactly. used to be quite commonplace and quite successfully. We see much less of all three of those things. And yet when it comes to hard drug use uh, and the use of things like heroin, crystal meth, fentanyl and cocaine, which I would say probably have the most societal consequences, uh, especially if they're being used en masse, um, they want to go in the exact opposite direction and run campaigns like use with a friend or it's OK to use or, or use safely or, you know, they're handing out these safer uh, snorting kits on high school, uh, uh, high schools here in British Columbia. Sorry, what, so, do you, what do you mean by that, Aaron? They're handing out snorting kits for drugs? What are you talking about? So at a, at a high school in British Columbia, the, a group that came in that was obviously invited in by the school, um, handed out uh, or left behind, I mean, it's the same thing, essentially, uh, gave to students. Uh, these kits called safer snorting kits, which you can which you can look up, which is uh, presumably supposed to uh, make it easier or somehow more safe to snort drugs wow. uh, like cocaine, like like hydromorphone. We talked to students um, that were had become addicted to this drug, and they said that most people were snorting it. That's how they were. That's how they were taking the safe supply pill wow. that the government wow. had uh, manufactured. So on that point, Aaron, um, you know, you've alluded to this. this it's like the, these policies, these governments are really facilitating the development of the next generation of uh, drug users, really young people. And it's very, very heartbreaking. So we do have a clip from the documentary that we'd like to play now that talks about that a little bit. This is a 16-year-old girl currently in recovery from hydromorphone addiction. When did you first hear about hydromorphone or, or what kind of names are people using for it on, on campuses? So obviously being young, you don't know too much about 
what everything's called, what the professional names for, let's say, what it is. So it would be Dilly or Dilaudid and stuff like that. Um, nobody ever really calls it hydromorphone or anything like that. Um, and when did you first like hear about it? Do you remember, or when did you first notice people using them? Or I'd say when I like started grade ten, like beginning of grade ten, so beginning of last year, it almost destroyed my life. Thanks to our own government introducing safe supply drugs like hydromorphone into street circulation, it has now never been cheaper or easier for children to get their hands on highly addictive and deadly opioids. Are people using it, you think, even younger than grade 10? I see 14, 13-year-olds using hydromorphone. Like sometimes even 12-year-olds. It's... Like, I hate saying it out loud because it's like, you almost don't want to believe it. Like, it doesn't seem real at all, but it's so real. I am now seeing much younger people than I've ever seen in my life. I even had a 15-year-old patient who is in grade nine tell me he started when he was in elementary school. And what kind of opioids are these? It would have been Dilaudid. At the direction of our federal government, hydromorphone has flooded our streets and into the pockets of our children. That was a very moving clip, uh, Aaron, and um, those must have been very difficult interviews for you to undertake. They were. I mean, it, it was uh, when I set out to make this project, I wasn't expecting to end up in that room interviewing that 16 year old girl. It was just it was like every kind of discovery led to another one. Mm -hmm. And um, it's it. I mean, it's it's just as she says that the, there's a there's a fire. Purdue Pharmaceuticals, with with the mass distribution of OxyContin, created this this inferno of addiction mm -hmm. that's been spreading throughout our, our country and has taken tens of thousands of lives in this country alone. And the government's attempting to put it out by pouring kerosene on it. I mean, that is literally our, our approach. I mean, uh, the crisis that was started by the provision of a very powerful addictive opioid that was distributed en masse that flooded into our streets we are now attempting, which we are now suing Purdue for, by the way, in, in British Columbia. We are now attempting to put out by providing, uh, flooding our streets with an even more powerful, just as addictive opioid called hydromorphone or dilaudid, as, as you mentioned, which is also made by Purdue Pharmaceuticals, by the way. The story doesn't get more bizarre. So it, um, it's, it's very disturbing. It's sad because, um, you know, so many of these kids, this one individual is on first of all she's on suboxone which is like a methadone it's an opioid replacement uh, therapy um which is which i think plays a role in helping to, to solve this but i mean to have to be 16 and on this this drug is uh nobody should be in that situation that, that is very sad to begin with and the other thing is that there's going to be i mean she said all of her friends were doing them and are addicted and some will be able to quit some will be able to get onto Suboxone and others will struggle and will go further down the addiction path. Some will start shooting up uh, hydromorphone and some will end up on the streets using fentanyl and inevitably overdosing and dying. And it all started with, with a single pill. Wow. I do want to um, ask a little bit about the professionals around this issue. Um, you know, I, one of the quotes I always think of uh, that I was taught as a, uh, a young person was that by Martin Luther King Jr. was um, the, 
the, the, the problem with evil is, is not so much the evildoers, it's the, the silence of the good people. So where, where are these professions when we think of them, whether it's the teaching professions, like the school boards, uh, the pharmacists, um, physicians? I mean, there's so many of them, and I don't mean to be sound, you know, simplistic or, or finger pointing, but there's a lot of professions that are ethically bound to professional standards and actions. So do you have any sense of where they're, are they waking up to this issue? I mean, a lot of people are scared for their, I mean, this is a culture that we live in right now where everyone's scared to speak out on things because of the, the kind of cancel culture, political climate that we live in, mm -hmm. uh, the kind of the social media climate where we're, and this, this kind of ideological mob that will, that are financially invested in concepts like harm reduction and safe supply who will go after you relentlessly if you speak out on this. I mean, we, um, Dr. Sharon Koivu, who was just in that clip that you showed, mm -hmm. yes, she she was going back and forth and finally decided to, to go on camera, basically said like, well, I'm at the end of my career anyways, so uh, wow. I, I'll be okay. But yeah, so she, young. You felt vulnerable as well, even as an established physician. Oh, yeah. No, they're there. Everybody's everyone's scared to say something. And uh, I mean, they see the consequences. I mean, look, if you're living, you have to have your head in the sand to not see the consequences of these policies. And, you know, most doctors, um, you know, are not comfortable prescribing these drugs, don't prescribe these drugs. Um, but most people are not willing to speak out about it because they worry about professional consequences, professional ramifications for doing so. And um, it just makes it more important that, that I that I dig around and find the individuals who, who will speak out and, and um, who will stand up and say, this, this isn't, uh, this isn't right. Wow. So in light of the kind of, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Aaron, but it seems like it's, uh, these professional groups are overwhelmingly silent. There are some that are heroes that are speaking up and there's a, you know, but we don't have anything like a healthy debate about these policies, do we? No, we don't. We don't have a healthy debate. We don't have a healthy discussion. I think that's that's one reason how we got here is that there hasn't been up until quite recently. I think it's starting to happen now. There hasn't been that dialogue, but there hasn't been the other side saying, hold on a second. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been doing this in Vancouver for 25 years. The situation's not getting better. Why is that? Exactly. Um, exactly. What, what's going on in the rest of the world? Why is why is this not happening in Portugal or or Denmark or, or mm -hmm. Germany or, you know, why do we have this really bad problem specific to here in Canada? And, um, and what are, what are some alternate solutions uh, to approach it? So that's, that's uh, been the problem, but the, the, the politicians, you know, have been completely, um, you know, captured in the sense on the left by these activists and these, these advocacy groups who believe that, that, uh, you know, there should be, open season for drug use and society just live with the consequences and and uh, that's that so and, and even uh, if uh, all these people are dying literally even including young people in the prime of their life yeah and it's amazing how they still think they that they still let, pretend like they have the compassionate high ground when it's their policies that have led to the deaths of tens of thousands of canadians and hundreds of thousands of people across north america um you know there's there's more people there's more people that have died 
that have overdosed and uh, over the past 10 years in this country that died in, in World War II and, and uh, yeah. were, were very close to it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a shocking number of people. It really and is. And the situation is not getting better. And, um, and yet these, these ideologues just refuse to, to admit that their policies aren't working. No, it, it's truly insane. So I did want to shift to the theme of hope. And I, one of the things I found very moving within the documentary is you talk about um, uh, the theme of hope, both in terms of individual lives and, and even jurisdictions. And one of them is the province of Alberta, the so-called Alberta model that's known internationally around the world. Um, I was really impressed. I, I didn't have an idea of the how ambitious and the scale of effort going on to deal with this um, this uh, drug uh, crisis. Can you tell us more about what the Alberta model is? Yeah. So to the extent that we have a, a fork in the road and and there's a bunch of people that want to, you know, in British Columbia, the, the, they think the solution is to hand out more drugs. In some cases, the exact same drugs that caused the problem in the first place. In Alberta, they're doing a different approach. It's called the recovery-oriented um, system of care. And that is... Um, a recovery and treatment based model that places hope at the center of what they're trying to accomplish and works to get these people the help that they need to get them clean off of drugs and to return them to being productive tax paying and law abiding citizens of society once again. And um, the goal there is to build these mini communities. They're building 10 of them. The first one that we toured is already finished. I don't know if it's open yet. We'll be opening very soon. And um, the idea is to build these recovery centers and, you know, with the idea that this is an extension of healthcare and should be accessible to all Albertans. And um, it's already seen the, the steps that have already been taken have seen tremendous amount of, of success. And, and the idea is, I think, to place, you know, on one hand, I, I would say from an overarching perspective, the goal is to make it easier to get into treatment than it is to get your next fix. In British Columbia, it is incredibly easy. You can go to anywhere, basically, and get your next fix uh, in the open, um, whereas there's huge wait lists to actually get into, into treatment programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alberta, they want to make it the opposite, where uh, anybody can enter treatment at any time just by calling a number, um, whereas uh, these drugs are not going to be flooding into the streets and being provided by the government. And um, if you continue to use drugs openly, and cause issues, there are going to be an increasing kind of levels of social sanctions. They're not going to be arresting drug addicts and throwing them into jail, but they're also going to be sending a clear message that says um, what you're doing is, is, is not okay, and, but government and society is here to help you uh, if you decide to take uh, mm-hmm. another approach. So I think it is, um, it's already, I think, proving successful. Um, and a big part of it is, is also changing a culture because culture is very important. And mm-hmm. in British Columbia, you've got a situation where you basically told people that this is your lot in life and the government's going to provide you with as much drugs as you need for the rest of your life. And here's a hotel room and and here's a lock to close your door and, and good luck with everything. Wow. And uh, in Alberta, uh, they're going to instead be taking away those drugs and saying, here's another option and helping to guide people through that. Um, again, and this is not just a simple detox program. This is a cohesive um, and very robust treatment uh, facility. And, and another thing is, is I always point out the hypocrisy on this because if you're Justin Trudeau 
uh, or your Jagmeet Singh, the two politicians that are the most vocal proponents of this policy, mm -hmm. and one of your kids or family members become addicted to these drugs, the solution for them is not going to be here's some hotel, some, you know, uh, crime ridden hotel, and here's a bag of free drugs. Good mm -hmm. luck. That's not what they're going to get. They're going to get world class treatment, abstinence based treatment, and recovery and the skills that they need to turn their lives around. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're going to get. But for some reason, these politicians think that for, you know, everybody else in society, working class Canadians, Indigenous Canadians, um, all they need are these, this so-called safe supply of drugs. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think it's, it's hypocrisy at the highest level and um, a, a really disturbing, uh, disturbing amount of it. Exactly. So it, the Alberta model makes a lot of sense. It sounds a little bit like the model in Portugal as well, where they have decriminalized drug use, but they strongly discourage it and they do hold you to increasing levels of accountability not to use drugs, but they make drug uh, dealing with your addiction easy. Is that the, the bottom line here? Yeah, and they provide um, disincentives to using drugs and incentives to to yeah. getting into treatment and getting clean. Exactly. So, I mean, there's no open drug use in Portugal. You're not allowed to use drugs openly like you can in British Columbia, for example. Mm -hmm. People try to make the comparison. It's, it's not a, it's not even a remotely accurate comparison. And um, they even have things called, uh, they're called drug dissuasion committees. So if you're caught using drugs in Portugal, you are issued a summons, basically. You have to um, uh, appear before a panel and explain yourself. And, um, you know, if it's maybe a first offense or second offense and you don't seem to have a problem, they'll basically mm -hmm. say, you know, don't do it again. Um, whereas it's, if it's you're clear that you're on, you have an issue, uh, an issue that's causing other kind of ripples throughout your community or family, then you are, the government slowly starts turning up the pressure on you to incentivize you to get into treatment. Well, well said, Aaron. And this is really a time really to call our fellow citizens and ask them, what can we do to help change these insane policies, these policies that are hurting so many Canadians? Any advice on that? I mean, I, I, I always tell people, you know, it's I mean, we live in a democracy, fortunately. So um, we need to have, I think, political change in this, this country. We, and that starts by having these conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, it should change either politically uh, with new people uh, in power or by putting pressure on those in power to to change the course that the destructive course that they're currently on. Mm -hmm. And um, we need to keep, turn up the temperature. We need to spread the word. Uh, we need we need people to to become politically active and engaged. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't mean you have to, you know, share things on social media. Maybe it means you share things in your family group chat. Mm -hmm. Maybe it means, you know, you start to bring up a topic at, din at, at dinner. Maybe it means uh, that you do volunteer with with uh, you know a local political candidate or something in the next okay. election, but people need to understand that you know we're all shareholders in this country. We're all mm -hmm. um, uh, and a democracy is only as strong as its citizenry. And right now in British Columbia, as far as as long as I've grown up, there's been a lot of apathy, and I think that apathy has been destructive. I think that apathy has has been partly because of our, our media and other things, but I, and universities, but I, I think that, uh, you know, people gotta, people gotta, you know, take responsibility as, as a citizen and ask, um, you know, you, you can, 
you can uh, spend as long as you want talking about how bad the situation is, which is important. But then when you're done that, ask, okay, what can I do in my way to, to help make it a little bit better and, and uh, find, a, find a way to push back in your own little, in your own little way. I think that's uh, right on, Aaron. And, it's, and certainly as a former elected official myself, it does make a difference to call your elected official, both at the local level, provincial level, the federal level, and express your concern. This is a vital issue that affects the health and well-being of, of all of us. So I, I, I really commend you for doing this documentary. It's uh, terrific that it has over 1 million views to date. Um, I encourage our, our audience to share that documentary with others, share this conversation that we've had today um, with others, because it's through awareness that we can have that healthy debate that's long overdue in this country about these policy areas. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and thank you so much for having me. And, and um, it's just uh, it's, it's good to finally see this debate and this discussion starting to happen on these important issues. So thank you so much. Aaron Gunn, the producer of Canada is Dying, the documentary, and I encourage you to watch it. So thank you so much for joining us and for your courage and your leadership. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.